This is Design Matters with Debbie Milner from designobserver.com. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with design blogger Grace Bonney about her changing tastes, her website, Design Sponge, and the do-it-yourself ethic that she promotes. I love interior designers and don't in any way want to belittle the craft that they have, but there used to be this sense that if you didn't know about design or go to school for it, you couldn't have it in your house, and that's crap. Here's Debbie Millman. Design is everywhere these days. The discipline includes not only traditional graphic design and architecture, but also information and management systems. Design has simultaneously been democratized, with the do-it-yourself ethic encouraging people to take charge of their own material world. An online hotbed of DIY is Design Sponge, the popular blog devoted to home and product design. Design Sponge is run by Grace Bonney, a 29-year-old writer living in Brooklyn, New York. She is also the author of the book Design Sponge at Home, which will be out this fall. Welcome to Design Matters, Grace. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Oh, it's great to have you here. So launched in August of 2004, Design Sponge was declared a Martha Stewart living for the millennials by the New York Times, and you have been called a design blogger wonder woman. (laughs) Yet I understand that you actually started the site as a hobby, as a way to spare your boyfriend from incessant design commentary. Is that true? That's absolutely true. I mean, I, I think Design Sponge has the humblest of, of beginnings. And I think because I never really expected it to be much, it's really helped the site maintain that sort of authenticity and just sheer joy for doing what I do. Now, where were you at that time in your career? I understand you were possibly interested at that time in design journalism. (laughs) I was basically in Nowheresville. I mean, I was about a year and a half out of college. I thought I was going to go into music and uh, did not enjoy my stint in the music industry. And so I ended up in design PR. And I worked for a great but really tiny shop in Park Slope and really loved getting to work with market editors at magazines. And I think growing up, even though I took some journalism classes at NYU where I went for a couple years, I wasn't aware that the position of market editor existed. I thought that if you were a writer for a magazine, you write huge, long articles, and that's what you do. And so when I got to meet people who write these really great short-firm things that involved just being out in the market and researching, I knew that was what I wanted to do. But I didn't have a degree in it. I didn't have any experience. And so I thought, you know, how am I going to get in there? And Aaron, who's my husband now, over brunch one day was like, just really start a blog and talk about the things you love. And maybe one day that will serve as sort of a digital portfolio and you can apply for a job. And the site ended up sort of becoming the magazine that I had always wanted to work for. Now, when you first came to New York, I understand that you joined a little meetup group (laughs) designed to connect girls um, who listened to the band Fish, and it was created to help find safe (laughs) rides to shows. And so were you a Fish groupie? Did you go to all the shows? You did your research. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I am a reformed hippie. Uh, I was a hippie in college. I used to have a jam band radio show. Really? Oh, wow. Um, That we didn't find. Yes, that I was the the lone jam bander and a college radio station full of indie rock kids. 
kids who really hated that I was able to have probably one of the worst spots on the radio lineup, but I loved it. So yes, I came from a jam band background um, and then moved to New York and I wanted to find some friends and didn't really know anybody. So I joined a meetup group. They were called the Funky Bitches, which is a reference <laughs> to a fish song, but re- looking back, it could not have been a more embarrassing group to be a part of. But that's how I actually met my husband was through a friend I made in that through group. Through the fish group. Yeah. So did you go to show after show after show, kind of like a Grateful Dead group? We did. It was actually, it was the beginning of the end for me. I, I met some girls in that group, and ironically, three of us became really good friends because we all decided we were sort of over the scene. And all of us were like into indie rock and different types of music and felt like that group didn't like if you liked other types of music. So it was a little too exclusive for us. So we all sort of split off and hung out, and that was sort of the end of of Jam for me. But it was a good scene for me to cut out of. (laughs) Now, didn't you you also ended up doing some PR for Fish? I did. Well, I used to work for Ropadope, which was a small independent label that used to be a subsidiary of Atlantic. And uh, so I was sort of, they called me the ministress of information, which means nice. I was basically the catch-all girl job. And uh, Mike Gordon, who was the bass player for Fish, was doing a solo album with Ropadope. And I was the only Fish person on the staff. Everybody else was sort of hip-hoppy, jazzy dudes. And uh, so I was sort of Mike's go-to for everything. And Mike got in big trouble that summer at, a, at I think, a Grateful Dead show and got sort of sued and had to go to court and what what did he do he allegedly took photos of an underage girl driving around on his Segway. Oh. I mean, it could not get more wacky and fish than that. Men. Yeah. So I, I was house-sitting for my boss and Rolling Stone called, and that was my first foray into crisis PR. And so I took those PR skills into PR in the design world. And so from there, you went to a design firm, and then from there, you got your gig at House and Garden working yes. as a freelance mm-hmm. consultant. I went, yeah, I went to PR, and while I was in the PR job, I started Design Sponge. And then one of the editors, Jen Renzi at House and Garden, and knew me through the PR job and said, you know, they're looking for a web editor here. I've suggested you and and it worked out beautifully. And you worked with Dominique Browning. I did, which was a complete honor. She's amazing. So that was pretty forward thinking to be doing that back, what was it, six, seven years ago? Absolutely. I think that was 2006, I think. Yeah, they were amazing. I mean, Liz, who was the executive editor there, both Liz and Dominique brought me in and said, you know, you're young and we know you don't know anything about this, but we firmly believe that you know the web is the future for the publishing industry and we, we want you to build a website and try to find a way to bring a younger audience in but not abandon the more traditional print audience. And so they really gave me free reign. It's still one of the best jobs I ever had. They gave me a budget and said, do what you think is right. And we came up with the original content. We designed the website and you know, it was probably the, the most intense period of learning I've ever had in publishing. So you were also a contributing editor at Domino and Craft magazines, but they've both since closed. <laughs> Everything's as closed. As has House and Garden. Do you think that there's a future for magazines? Do you think there's a future for shelter magazines? God, I hope so. I really hope so. But I, and I mean, if you asked me that a year ago, I was really firmly in the camp of, yes, like there will always be a future for print. But I'm starting to think that maybe there's not, or at least not in the way we know it right now. I think that there may be more specialized niche publications that come out less often. They may be sort of supplements to something digital. But I think the way the magazines are supported right now with ads is just not sustainable. And, and the budgets for those magazines are... I mean, I run a staff of like 25 people now, and we run it on a shoestring. So the budgets they had at magazines really could have been slashed in half, and things still could have been done. So if somebody can figure out to crack the code of how to produce a luxe-looking magazine without spending millions of dollars, then they'll make it work. But I think it's just too big of an adjustment for the big houses like Condé, and I don't think they're going to cut their budgets that way. 
Have they come after you to write or to edit one of their magazines? Back in the day, they did. I mean, like 2007, 2008, when people were still trying to bring in bloggers, they were. But there was a very distinct lack of respect for bloggers as sort of a really cheap source of of work. And I think I always valued my work a little bit more strongly. And I was happy to work for free when I felt that it was a good fit. But I think most of us were just sort of seen as like cheap and easy labor. So I sort of bowed out of that a couple years ago and decided to just focus on the site instead. So how do you think that the web and design blogs in general have affected design and the design market? I read that you said from crowdsourced product design to the increased access to designers and products from around the world, it's as if the wall between consumers and products has completely crumbled. It has. I mean, again, like a couple years ago, I don't think I would have felt that way. But as the site has grown, I've really gotten to talk to more people in different places. And I really do think the web and not just design blogs, but sort of all the web represents in terms of crowdsourcing and having things developed, you know, with these websites that will like do CNC cutting and things for you. I think the web has really just demolished everything in between designer and their actual product or designer and the consumer. And I think it's a wonderful thing. And I think if we're able to sort of connect people who care about design with the people making it, it sort of revolutionizes the industry. Yeah, that wall is, it's gone. Yeah, I mean, even with interior designers, and I I love interior designers and don't in any way want to belittle the craft that they have, but there used to be this sense that if you didn't know about design or to go to school for it, you couldn't have it in your house. And that's crap. So I, I want people to be able to really find ways to bring their personality into their house without having to hire somebody to do it for them. So let's talk about Design Sponge. <laughs> First, the name. Oh, God. Design Sponge. Where did that come from? How did you decide to name your blog Design Sponge? <laughs> I mean, the, I really wish I had picked a cooler name. It's, I have to say the word sponge like 20 times a day now, and it's not the coolest word in the dictionary. <laughs> uh, but it, it's it's accurate. I'm not the coolest person in town, so it's okay. But I think that it came from the way I soak up information obsessively. I get into something, I research it like crazy, and I know everything there is to know about that within a couple weeks. And it's just the way my personality has been with everything. So that's how I was with design when I first discovered it in college. And so it just seemed fitting that I was just soaking up information and just sort of regurgitating it with excitement on the web. And that was how the name came about. I I wish it was something really sleek and awesome and cool I got to say every day, but instead I feel like it immediately sets the cool bar down a little bit. I think it's it's wonderful and I think it's a really charming name. (laughs) But so you started the site because you didn't want to be talking to Aaron about design incessantly. (laughs) When did you sense that anybody was reading it? How did you know that anybody was paying attention to it? I mean, I think people, they started to leave comments pretty early on. I, I think that when I started, there was no Domino magazine. There was no Blueprint magazine. There wasn't really sort of a, a feminine-leaning website that was sort of unabashedly girly, slightly edgy, and young and informal that just didn't exist in traditional print media or on television. And so I think that me just being me would just it was the right place and the right time to do it. And I think it just connected really early because there were only like four or five blogs that were in the design niche when I started and they were all very different. So I think I connected with that audience really early on and we really benefited from being there in the beginning. So I think that was why we caught on. And then there was an article in the Times maybe like five or six months after I started that we got scooped up into and that really gave us the first huge chunk of, of readers and then things grew sort of organically from there. How did the New York Times even find you at that point? 
Fish. That was all fish connection. I mean, that was, well, Lockhart Steele, who's a a writer that most people in New York know for one reason or the other these days, was one of the people who wrote the Farmer's Almanac, Farmer with a PH. Okay. (laughs) He wrote the fish sort of almanac uh, years ago, and I knew him really tangentially through that. And he wrote the story and was aware of my site, and we sort of knew each other's names through that community. And he said, I'm writing the story. You know, you're one of the few people doing these sites. Can I interview you? And so I think that's how I got sucked into it. Um, And it was myself and Maxwell from Apartment Therapy and Harry from Moco Loco. And that sort of put all of us on the map in a big way. And, you know, I'm very thankful to have been a part of that. Isn't that amazing just how one thing leads to another and leads to another and then there's your life. Yeah. And you can't plan it. I mean, no one ever gets out of college and says, I'm going to start a design blog. And well, that's maybe not be then. <laughs> now they probably maybe do. Now. Yeah. I mean, I remember graduating thinking I have two years of journalism classes and two years of fine art. No one's going to hire me. So I mean, looking back, it makes perfect sense what I do now. But I couldn't have planned it or really wished for it. So I'm glad I sort of fell into it the way that I did. So back in by the end of 2004, then you had about 10,000 readers a day. Mm-hmm. And then in 2008, you had 30,000 daily readers. In 2010, you had 60,000. And now you have about 75, 80,000. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? So you also have over 200,000 followers on Twitter, 230 <laughs> something last time I looked. So what do you attribute this growth and popularity? I don't know. It's hard to really put a finger on it because I, I'm not a numbers person. Like, I honestly don't look at our numbers that often because I find it really sort of skews my focus and makes me lose track of what's important, which is just the content. I'm always really honest about if my taste has changed or my interests have changed. And so that's why we have, like, food columns on the site now because I got really into cooking and was like, I want to talk about what I care about. So I've gradually added things. And I think because my enthusiasm for those subjects is real, it sort of resonates with the audience. I read that a few years ago you th- you said that you were into super cute things. Oh god. And <laughs> is that upsetting? I'm trying to shake the cute off real bad. Right now. Okay, so how would you yeah. how would you describe your style now? I I'm really in transition right now. I think I'm about to turn 30. I don't know why, but it's sort of triggered this real need to drop the cute off of it. I mean, I'm not in any way trying to like talk badly about anybody who loves cute, but I think that I really inhabited that cute space fiercely for a couple years and I polka dotted and striped everything I owned. And I just woke up one day and felt like it's time to change. I felt like I was wearing a polka dotted dress that was too tight. I just needed to like get out of it and grow up a little bit. And I, <laughs> so I think that the site is moving more towards less really loud patterns and focusing on things that are sort of quality. And handmade will always be there. That, that emphasis is always going to stay. But I think as our readers get older, we're slightly less interested in like cute plastic accessories. And that's just a natural move. And there will always be younger sites and younger people to populate that space. So I think that we try to stay true to who we are at the time. And if that means we lose some readers who are looking for, you know, cute times a thousand, then that's all right. I just I want people to understand what we're into at the time. And I'm fully okay with with that changing. I think Design Sponge has to grow and change to stay relevant. It's so interesting because in thinking about shelter magazines or even entertainment magazines, most of them have a pretty stable style. Mm-hmm. You know, Vogue has pretty much had the same kind of style since mm-hmm. Anna Winter took over. But when somebody has an individual blog or somebody's name is associated with the individual blog, yours, though you have 25 people working with you, it's very much a Grace mm-hmm. Bonnie production, Heather Armstrong the same way. There seems to be almost the same type of trajectory as an artist, Mm -hmm. where every 
couple of months or years, they develop and grow and their fans follow them through that evolution of character. It's so interesting to sort of look at the two different types of genres and compare how the communication is created. Yeah, I think I mean I think the difference between especially myself and, and Anna Winter, I mean, besides the obvious differences, is that I mean, she's older and I I think that when you get to a certain age, there is some sort of confidence and self-awareness and comfortableness in your own style that I didn't have when I was 23 and started the site. I knew that I liked things that probably looking back reminded me of home and reminded me of like the preppy southern background that I grew up with and I think that was represented in my obsession of all things striped and patterned and that sort of, you know, cutesy southernness. And so I think that as I get older and get more comfortable in my skin, I feel okay letting go of some of that. And I also just feel that to stay relevant, you have to change. And I never change for the sake of changing, but I feel comfortable changing things up. We're about to launch a redesign of the site in May. I think I was really scared about doing it for a while, but I think now I just sort of accept the fact that I'm different, my style is different, and, you know, I know people associate us with, like, a linen background and super collage stuff, but I'm just sort of over that look. So I'm ready to do something different, and I think we've always been a couple steps ahead of the general design blog aesthetic trends. So I, I think that while it may look really different at first, it's the sort of move that I think a lot of us are going towards, which is cleaner and more sophisticated and a bit more grown up. So though you started Design Sponge in 2004, it wasn't until 2006 that you actually left your full-time job. And I read at the time that you broke into your savings and started treating the site like a big investment, and it made a huge difference. It- I think that's what sets us apart from other sites in terms of growth and positioning. As I've always invested before, we've really been comfortable enough to invest yet. But I think that's you have to have faith in your business. And in 2007, when I hired also to do the redesign, they were very kind about what they charged me for the website redesign. But it was more money than I'd ever spent on anything in my life. And it was terrifying. But I knew that having a design that made us stand out from the pack would be what made us stand out. And it did. And so looking back, it was totally a great decision to spend that much money up front. And it's what we've done. Every year we invest in something that seems a little bit scary and a little bit out of reach, but it's always what pushes us over the limit. And so this year I hired my first full-time employee to work with me, um, which has been the best decision we've ever made because I get so much more work done. And, you know, we bounce off of each other with ideas really well. And I think that's what's kept the site fresh for me. But it was scary. I mean, I'm responsible for somebody else's well-being, which is a little crazy to me. Now, other people in that position might be overwhelmed by the fear and being mm-hmm. scared and not do the things that you ultimately pushed yourself to do. How did you get that courage up to just push through that fear? I think that's how I operate. I've always sort of been a leap first type of person. I wish I was more methodical in planning. I've never made a business plan in my life. I enjoy just sort of running with things. I think that's why I love the website so much is because if I come up with a new column idea, I can test it and have it up within like two hours. So I like the idea of trying something and seeing how it works. I mean, obviously, it's a much bigger risk when you take on an employee and ask somebody to leave their job. But I love that. I don't know. I'm, I'm an immediate sort of person. Now, how did you find the person that you hired? Amy Azarito worked with me on Design by the Book, which was a video series we did with the New York Public Library. Still probably my favorite project I've ever done with Design Sponge. And uh, she worked at the library. She was working in the digital department. And she was the producer, basically, of the series. And we got along really well. And she was actually a writer for Apartment Therapy at the time. And we just started hanging out. And she's like my business soulmate. We have the best ideas. We bounce off each other so well. And we complement each other's senses of style and way of working really nicely. And so she started writing 
writing for us originally. And then I realized that I knew I wanted to work with her. So without her knowing, I set up a, a savings account for an entire year and just funneled all of our extra money into it so that when we brought her on, we at least could afford to keep her for, for a year. Okay, now that uh, brings yeah. me to my next question, <laughs> because this really interested me. I read that you are a hoarder. <laughs> Not in like the A and E no, special no, no, sort no, of way. No, not the A and E special <laughs> kind of way. No, you 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 hoard your money and you save yes. it, and you've always done that ever since you were a little girl. So tell me about that because I kind of do that too. I'm a real like head in the sand person with money, and I hate that because it's such a stereotypically negative gender thing to put on women. But I really do that. I don't like to know how much money I have or where it is. I just like to like sack it away. Like, if I could put it under a mattress, I probably would. So I just started a savings account for Amy, and I, I do that with everything. I think it's part of that like I just want to leap and feel impulsive personality trait that I have. I, I really like just sort of diving into it. And that's the thing is I'm not afraid to spend it when I know what I want to spend it on. But until I know exactly what I want to do in the moment, I don't touch anything. I read that you said that you, if there were an apocalypse, you'd want your money readily accessible. And I'm the same way. Not only am I like that with money, but I'm also like that with paper products. Like I always have to have oh my God. tissues and toilet paper. Like I have enough toilet paper in my house to last <laughs> through the next millennium. I, well, I never have enough toilet paper in my house. Not that I use the bathroom more than any other human being, but I never have enough in the house, but I do have stationery and cards to last through the next 40 years. Um, I don't know why I can't part with really beautiful cards. I, I hoard them like crazy. Um, so yes, I do have hoarder tendencies, but I don't have like 15 smushed cats somewhere underneath, <laughs> underneath my couch. See, now I also have three pets, so I might be moving ever so slightly more If I wasn't married, I think I'd probably have like four or five cats at this point. We only have two right now, but I would, I would easily take two or three more. Now, your husband also left his job and yes. has joined the design sponge empire. So what is that like? Tell me about how that's been. We both work together. He works on the business side of the site. I think if we worked on the same part of the site, we'd probably kill each other. Um, we're very both really stubborn and have really strong, you know, opinions and aren't, aren't shy to express them. So I think the fact that we work in completely different areas allows us to sort of be the boss of our own fields. Um, but it's great. I mean, he's an incredibly hard worker. He knows so much about that side of things and really believes in it. I mean, I really couldn't ask for a more supportive partner in, in everything. So, yeah, it's great. I mean, the fact that we both get to work and support ourselves as, as our own bosses, there's literally nothing better than that. So let's talk about advertising. You, sure. When did you start accepting advertising on the site? Uh, I think probably like 2005, I think. Uh, I had, and did they come to you? Was it yeah. very much a... It's almost always been that way. I think Velocity Art and Design in Seattle was the first company that emailed us. And John was like, hey, would you consider putting an ad up? And I was really resistant to the idea of having ads on the site. But I sort of threw it up and thought... Why were you resistant? I think I'm always really fiercely protective of editorial integrity. And I was really worried that people would think I was selling out or that I was in it for money, even though that money was like $50 a month at that point. <laughs> uh, but I just was really concerned about it. And back then, there was that big campaign that people had these banners on their sites that said, I'm an ad-free blog. And it was really intense. And I think there was a lot of, you know, hating on people who sold ads on their sites. So, and back then, blogs didn't cost anything to run. I mean, Blogger was free. I didn't have to worry about image hosting. I didn't have anybody else writing. So it didn't seem like there was any point. And I I didn't really think I deserved to be paid. I was having so much fun that I thought, why do I deserve to get paid for this? I'm just doing what I love. But obviously, when I had to start paying for my own website hosting and a team, it started to seem like more of a necessity. So it's always sort of grown organically. Like when I needed to pay people, then we took on some extra ads. Now, how far in advance do you plan your stories? When I, I recently interviewed Tina Roth-Eisenberg from oh. Swiss Miss, 
And I asked, she's amazing. I asked her how she organizes her posts on Swiss Miss, and she said that she decides what she's going to write that day. I write my morning posts, which are usually the personal, sometimes product-based posts, usually about half an hour before they go up. They're the most sort of spontaneous part of the site. Everything else goes up the afternoon before, usually, um, because they're original columns that get uploaded by other editors, and then our copy editor goes through them at night. So usually the day before is probably as far out as we go. Sometimes for entertaining posts or big, heavy posts that require like a photo shoot, those get planned out a couple weeks in advance. But we really try to keep it as fresh as possible. So now that you have contributors, are you both writing and editing? Or is your copy editor doing the editing? The copy editor, Erica, who saved our lives, because um, we, we just make so many mistakes. I mean, most of us are not are not writers. We don't have any formal writing training. Um, but we're trying, obviously, to get better. And I think I'm one of the few sites that has a copy editor now. And everybody thought we were stupid for doing that. But I really do try to take us a little bit more seriously. How could people think that copy editing is I stupid? Not, well, I can't <laughs> tell you how many bloggers say stuff like, we're not the New York Times. And it's like, yeah, there's a reason you're not the New York Times, because you don't care that much. And right. you should care that much. Or I don't want to be the site that can't get its and its correct you know like that's horribly embarrassing (laughs) and i haven't my mom was an english teacher and so i'm sure she cringes every time i do hear and hear wrong even though i know the right way to do them it's just blogging is really off the cuff and sometimes you make mistakes but at a certain point those mistakes sort of read as naive and i don't want our site to come across as a bunch of girls just sort of yapping without really thinking about it so we brought on erica to copy edit which is great i edit in terms of of, I think, theme and overall tone of voice. But for the most part, the most formal copy editing happens at night with Erica. Do you find that your moods ever influence your writing style? Oh, God, yeah. I mean, I think over the last three months, probably, I've really injected myself back into the site more. I really pulled myself out of the site for a good year or two because I didn't feel like being super personal. I felt like it was too much me. And I think I was reacting to the fact that there were a lot of design blogs that were very like me, 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 me. And I just got sick of that. And I thought, okay, well, I'm going to not do any of that anymore and just make it about content. And then I realized that sort of personality was just sucked out of the site. So I started to put myself back in more and be really honest about the fact that my style is changing. I don't really know what it is yet. And people have really responded well to that. So I think that that sort of honesty when you have something to say is important. But if you don't have anything to say about that, then I just usually stay quiet. So you have a 400-page book (laughs) titled Design Sponge at Home coming this fall from Artisan Press. Tell us about the book. Well, it's been a really long process. It took us about two years. The book was actually supposed to come out last fall. And we really rushed and we sort of changed the voice of the book. And it was such a good learning experience to realize, I mean, obviously, web writing and print writing are very different. And I've always written like a magazine editor, which is very descriptive. And I had to learn how to write in a more educational way to like teach people what we're writing about. So it's about half homes. And then there's a huge section of DIY projects and a huge section of before and afters, which are sort of the core, most popular sections of the site. And then in between that, we have primers for DIY things, everything from like hanging wallpaper to rewiring lamps. And then we have a my favorite section is the floral school section, which sort of teaches you all the basics of flowers. And we have tons of flower examples that are all inspired by rooms in the book. So it's a giant chunk of inspiration and actual practical information. It was sort of the book that I wished was in the market. I think it was what I wished the Domino book had been, which was like a bit more relatable and a bit more functional. And so we just decided to build it ourselves. And I'm so in love with it and I'm so excited for it to come out. So a big, big part of the book is DIY. Yes. Why DIY? 
I think it sort of encompasses everything we believe, which is that you don't have to buy and have a lot of money to have the things that you want or, or have your house look the way that you want it to look. And I don't have a ton of money, and I think most of our readers don't. So it just makes sense to make things by hand or sort of refurbished. So I think that just sort of infuses everything we do from cooking to designing to, you know, actual just straightforward DIY crafting projects. And I understand that you have 50 reader-submitted makeover projects (laughs) with price points, with how-to tips. You have furniture to Mm full-home makeovers. How did you curate and choose all these projects? Really carefully. Each of the sections of the book, the houses, the projects, and the makeovers are all half new, half old. So it's a mix. But um, yeah, we just went with our gut, I think, and decided we picked the things that I think would inspire people the most to, to break out their hammer and staple gun and try something. So the last thing I want to ask you about Grace is your Design Sponge Scholarship Program. Oh, thanks. So so now you're also giving back to the community. Mm-hmm. What made you decide to start the scholarship fund and how is it working? It's working beautifully. I mean, to hear, I hear back from people who have won or have been finalists in the last couple of years and to hear what they're doing and to get to write about them as working artists now is probably one of the most gratifying things I've done. I just realized there was a real need to support up-and-coming artists. And I was it really came from being uninspired by what I was seeing in the field in 2007. I thought, it's not a lot of originality happening. I went to ICFF, which is the big contemporary show at Javits, and I just walked away feeling like, nothing exciting is happening. And I realized, well, those exciting things are happening in college. They're happening at student shows. And those kids don't have a lot of money. They don't get to experiment outside of college because it's not funded. So what can I do? And I thought, well, I can give them some money and tell them that they can use it in any way they want to because – You know, there's no set way that creativity and great design happens. It might be that that money has to fund a trip to Sweden where they see something really interesting. It might be they just need time off to really just work on stuff or they need supplies. So I funded it by myself. I just put my own money into it and gave them money and let readers vote on what they thought was the most interesting and the most promising. And then that went really well. So the next year's we we had some sponsors and we have sponsors going forward. But we always – Design Sponge always sponsors a part of it personally. But I think if you really love design, you have to foster – who the designers are going to be that you're covering in 10 years. So I see that as a no-brainer. Like, it would be silly of me to be a design lover and not try to support the next generation of great designers. Grace, you are a force of nature. Thank you so (laughs) much for everything that you do for the community, and thank you for making our world a more beautiful place to live in. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. You can get all sorts of ideas for your own home at Grace Bonney's blog, designspongeonline.com. I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Rainey Ortica and research by Jen Simon. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store.